Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Park City, Utah. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, one of the largest United Methodist churches in the country and the largest in South Carolina is preparing to leave the denomination. And the Internal Revenue Service is far behind in its efforts to process Form 990s. This backlog is a blow to transparency and accountability, and we'll explain why. And we remember pastor, author, and hymn writer Jack Hayford, who died last week at age 88. We begin today with former Celebration Church pastor Stovall Weems. He and his wife Carrie have settled with First Citizen Bank after a claim stating they defaulted over $700,000 in unpaid debt. Yeah, according to court documents filed last May, First Citizens Bank said that the Weemses failed, neglected, and refused to pay about $716,000 in overdue defaulted loans. The Weemses owned about, owed about $600,000 of that debt for their nonprofit Honey Lake Farms, which is a 565-acre hunting preserve that has exotic animals and a 5,000-square-foot lot. The rest of the debt, a little over $70,000, was from credit cards managed by two of the couple's companies, Weems Group LLC and North Stream Management Group LLC. Last month, an attorney for the bank filed a notice stating First Citizens was voluntarily dismissing the suit due to amicable settlement. However, the Weems's days in court are far from over. Despite the settlement with First Citizens Bank, the couple remains involved in two other lawsuits that have not been resolved. Last spring, Celebration Church launched an investigation over concerns that the Weems breached their fiduciary responsibilities to the church. A 22-page report accused the Weemses of fraud and said that he unjustly enriched himself at the expense of the church through a series of deals and purchases. The report claims his conduct brought celebration to the brink of insolvency and listed the church's unpaid accounts receivable at more than $3.3 million. Following Weems's resignation from all roles at Celebration in April, the couple filed a defamation lawsuit against the former church. In it, they claimed that the church's report that he had committed rampant spiritual and emotional abuse, along with fraud, slandered his character. But Judge Marianne Lloyd dropped the defamation suit. However, they did. she did leave open the opportunity for the Weems's to renew a new case, and they did so back in October. In addition to the defamation suit, the Weems have another case to defend. Celebration Church filed a lawsuit on June the 1st of last year seeking to remove the couple from a million-dollar estate they claim the Weems purchased last summer as a parsonage, but without authorization from the church's board. The suit said although the Weems have no property rights, title, or interest, they continued to live on the property after the Weems' resignation and refused to pay rent or vacate the premises. Lawyers representing the Weems and the church will present their arguments on the property dispute 
in just a couple of weeks on January 23rd. The next hearing on the defamation case will come the very next day on January 24th. Our next story involves a pro-life pregnancy center firebombed last June in Buffalo, New York. It has decided to conduct its own investigation into the violence. Compass Care is a ministry to women in crisis pregnancies that's been operating since 1980. It incurred over $500,000 in damages to its facility due to violence. Services continued in an alternative location while the center was being repaired, but it took 52 days to rebuild the firebombed center, according to the Compass Care president, Jim Harden. The center said it received little help from local, state, and federal law enforcement. Harden also noted that it will conduct its own investigation in conjunction with the Thomas More Society, which is a Catholic public interest law firm based in Chicago. The goal of the investigation is to look at all violent events at pregnancy centers across the country, which is estimated to be around 78 centers, and find any commonalities. Then they will use the evidence found to file a civil suit. Tom Brazier is president of the Thomas More Society. Brazier said both Compass Care and the Thomas More Society would prefer to work with law enforcement, but they will proceed with civil action as appropriate. Brazier said they are still waiting on reports from investigators, but early reports indicate that the same actors are carrying out the violent attacks on all these facilities, or many of those facilities at least, all around the country. Let's look at one more story before we take a break. It's a story of five women in California who have filed a lawsuit alleging that the International Churches of Christ perpetuated a systemic scheme of abuse that included the sexual abuse of children as young as three years old, as well as financial abuse of its members. The five women who are now in their 20s or early 30s filed a Racketeer-Influenced and Corruption Organizations Act, or RICO, lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California on December the 30th against ICOC and affiliated organizations, the International Christian Church, Hope Worldwide Limited, Mercy Worldwide, and the City of Angels International Christian Church. ICOC founder Kip McKean and the estate of Chuck Lucas, whom the plaintiffs say co-led the church, are also named as defendants. The ICOC has more than 120,000 members across 144 countries, according to the lawsuit. In the complaint, the plaintiffs allege abuse that, in their words, shocks the conscience from its appallingly epic proportions by a ruthless den of sexual predators who used physical force and psychological manipulation to rape and abuse children, then pressured members to say say silent about it through payoffs and nondisclosure agreements. Two of the plaintiffs in the case identified pedophile David Saraceno as their abuser and alleged that the church did not adequately protect them from him. The plaintiffs allege they suffered harm, including physical, mental, and emotional injuries from the childhood sex abuse and molestation and incurred medical and other expenses for care, treatment, and counseling. 
The lawsuit also claims church members were coerced into tithing, giving 10% of their income to the church to contribute funds to mission trips twice a year and to meet a quota for bringing in new members. And that pressure to comply led some church members to depression and, they say, even to suicide. The plaintiffs presented 10 claims for relief, including sexual assault of a minor, failure to report suspected child abuse in violation of the penal code, and sexual battery. Uh, They have asked to be awarded both compensatory and special damages, statutory penalties, liquidated damages, punitive damages, and exemplary damages, as well as the cost of litigation itself. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the Internal Revenue Service is way behind in processing the tax returns of nonprofit organizations. We'll have the latest. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the story we promised before the break. As Americans scrambled to make their year-end charitable contributions, they had to do so without a key tool for understanding how those charities spend their money, and that is their most recent tax returns. According to a ProPublica review of public IRS information that was published here at Ministry Watch, the agency is behind on releasing nearly a half million tax returns known as Form 990s for tax-exempt organizations. The delays, which began two years ago, are stymieing access to key financial information that governments, the public, grant makers, and oversight groups such as Ministry Watch use to evaluate the nation's tax-exempt organizations. Ministry Watch has been reporting on this problem for months. We have. uh, We wrote our first story about the problems at the IRS last April, nearly a year ago now, and we've mentioned the problem often in other stories that we've written since then. But now others are noticing what we noticed early last year, and that is that it's getting so severe that even state charitable enforcement officers are beginning to sound alarms. In November, the National Association of State 
charity officials sent a letter urging the IRS to address backlogged 990 data releases. The organization wrote a letter to the IRS that said, for charity regulators, the Form 990 series not only helps ensure transparency and accountability, but also provides vital information for state investigations into potential fraud and misuse of charitable resources. It is critical that the availability of that data be timely. So what's on a Form 990? Well, the filings which tax-exempt organizations must submit annually detail how they uh, carried out their public interest mission uh, that discloses executive pay, as well as any grant-making or fundraising activities that they were engaged in during the year. Uh, These documents provide real insight into a key sector of the U.S. economy. In fact, nonprofits employ more than 12 million Americans. The filings can help people Uh, assess the operations of an organization before making a financial donation. Uh, They help regulators and journalists uncover wrongdoing. I can tell you that we use Form 990s just about every day here at Ministry Watch, and much of the information that we're receiving from the IRS is now at least a year old. Some of it is as much as two or three years old. So is the IRS taking these complaints seriously? Well, in a statement, the IRS said that it is making progress, those are their words, and aims to resume posting information pretty soon. Uh, This is an important tool, a spokesperson said, and the IRS is committed to keeping information up to date on the site to help taxpayers and others who use the data. That sounds pretty nonspecific. Yeah, it is pretty nonspecific, all of which means that we really don't know when the IRS will get caught up. There have been a couple of data dumps over the last six months, and we thought, wow, maybe the log jam has broken, but then weeks will go by before any new data is released. Um, So we don't know when they will eventually get caught up on this vital task. Orrin, it seems that every week we report on some new development at the United Methodist Church. What's the news this week? Well, South Carolina's largest United Methodist Church is gearing up to break from the denomination with a formal vote expected next month. Mount Horeb United Methodist is in Lexington, South Carolina, which is right outside of Columbia, the state capital, and it has for some time been inching toward a disaffiliation vote. Uh, Beginning on Monday, January the 9th, Mount Horeb begins a 30-day discernment period, which... um, after which it will then vote on whether to break away from the denomination. Two-thirds of the congregation must vote to leave to trigger the exit, and so far the vote hasn't been scheduled. Pastor Jeff Kiersey, the church's longtime pastor, has been clear that he favors pulling out of the denomination. He says the United Methodist Church has been moving away from Orthodox Christian tenets, particularly around sexuality. The church's discernment guide says this, We believe in celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage, with marriage being defined as between a man and a woman. Mount Horeb relies on the scriptures and what Orthodox Christians have always believed about God to guide all manners of human relations, including sexual ethics. 
Formally, the United Methodist Church rules also affirm these beliefs, but many congregations and pastors in the 6.4 million member denomination have publicly disavowed them. Mount Horeb has more than 5,100 members, and among them is Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor. And it's one of the largest United Methodist churches in the country to publicly announce its plans to sever ties with the United Methodist Church. Others include Fraser United Methodist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and White's Chapel United Methodist Church in the Dallas area. And we've reported on the White's Chapel uh, situation previously here at Ministry Watch. The South Carolina Conference, a regional body of the United Methodist Churches, has 958 churches. South Carolina churches wishing to break away from the denomination this year must vote by March the 1st. The conference will then formally ratify their exit at a meeting in June. And we have one more bit of news coming from the United Methodist world. We do. Uh, The Confessing Movement, which is a lay-led conservative Christian movement that pushed back against the influences of liberalism and progressivism within the United Methodist Church, has now shut down. And they've shut down, they say, for a good reason, uh, that the launch of a new conservative denomination means that they're no longer needed. The group's executive director, Patricia Miller, basically said, mission accomplished. The group felt that their goal had had been accomplished by the formation of the Global Methodist Church. Thus, the movement could disband in good conscience. We believe with the launching of the Global Methodist Church that our goal for a faithful denomination has been met, Miller said. The group was formed in 1994, so nearly 30 years ago, and Patricia Miller has been the executive director since 1997. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? The Reverend Jack Hayford, a popular Pentecostal leader and pioneer of the megachurch movement, often regarded as a pastor to pastors, died on Sunday, January the 8th. He was 88 years old. Hayford died peacefully uh, in his San Fernando Valley home in Southern California, according to a statement from the Church on the Way, a church in Sherman Oaks and Van Nuys that he led for nearly 30 years until 1999. He retained his membership there and received the title of Pastor Emeritus in 2015. 
Hayford came to the church on the way in 1969 when it was known as the first Foursquare Church of Van Nuys. The church expanded from fewer than 20 members to more than 12,000 members under Hayford's leadership, according to a biography and legacy timeline of Hayford that was provided by the Foursquare Church, noting that the growth marked it as a pioneer in the megachurch movement. The church on the way launched a second campus after it acquired the property of First Baptist Church of Van Nuys in the late 1980s. He was also the author of more than 50 books, and he composed hundreds of hymns and choruses, including the widely known Majesty, a worship song that is still often played in churches worldwide today. Our next story involves a church that is undergoing a name change. Now, Warren, churches change their names from time to time, but it's not normally national news. You're right. It's not normally national news, but the circumstances here are a little bit different and I think interesting. Uh, A Baptist church in Alaska is changing its name to better reflect its vision and to prevent any association with what its head pastor called false religions. Anchorage Baptist Temple will now be known as Mountain City Church. The Associated Anchorage Christian School will become Mountain City Christian Academy. Pastor Ron Huffman said the word temple is more often associated with false religions these days than with true places of worship. And he said that the name of the church had become a barrier to ministry in uh, Alaska, in the Anchorage area. The 2,500-member church was founded in 1956. Uh, Pastor Don White uh, founded the church as a Baptist Bible church, and then it was led for many years by Pastor Jerry Prevo. In fact, he was there for 50 years. Under his leadership, the church grew to include a radio and TV ministry throughout the state. Prevo, by the way, was recently named to be the interim president of Liberty University, further elevating the profile of both Prevo and his former church. And who do we have in the ministry spotlight this week? Kentucky Mountain Bible College. The school began in 1931 to prepare students for a ministry of spreading scriptural holiness. It offers undergraduate programs in the Wesleyan tradition, which is tailor-made for those going into ministry with the Salvation Army, with the Methodists, with Nazarene, and other holiness churches. However, alumni fill places of Christian leadership in many denominations, mission societies, and other Christian organizations. Now, we wanted to put a spotlight on this ministry this week because it recently joined the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, and it's unusual in that it spends almost nothing on fundraising. And it claims that its graduate that its students graduate from college debt-free. You can learn more by going to the Ministry Watch website and typing in the name of the college, Kentucky Mountain Bible College, into the search engine. Who did Christina highlight in Ministries Making a Difference? Well, for the past six months, volunteers from Faith Assemblies of God in London, Kentucky, have been traveling once a week to Jackson, Kentucky, a city about 90 minutes away that was ravaged by flooding last summer. You might remember those floods that were in the news for 
uh, many days. Uh, church members started by handing out food and water and eventually began helping clear out and rebuild homes for people that were victimized by those floods. It's a great example of how Christian ministries and churches are often both the first in but also the last out when it comes to times of natural disaster. We also wanted to highlight Joplin First Church of the Nazarene in Joplin, Missouri. They sheltered over 100 homeless people spanning over spanning four days during a winter storm with dangerously cold temperatures and high winds. Since then, the church has launched a permanent homeless ministry providing hot meals, showers, and clothing twice a week. Local nonprofits are even donating food and hygiene products. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I do a couple of items. Uh, Last week, I mentioned how grateful I was to those of you who contributed to our year-end fundraising campaign, but I didn't have a final number. Now I do, and I'd like to share it with you. Uh, We had an ambitious fundraising goal of $81,000 for the months of November and December combined, and we ended up raising $87,000. So um, about $6,000, nearly 10% above that goal. So again, thank you very much. Also, I want to mention um, that we're going to be doing our webinar, How to Find and Read a Form 990. Again, this webinar is one we've done in the past, but it's proven so popular that we wanted to repeat it again, especially in light of some of the news that we've been reporting on even earlier in this program about Form 990s and their importance. It'll take place on February the 1st at 4 o'clock Eastern time in the afternoon. Just check your daily Ministry Watch emails. There's a link there uh, to the registration page. It's absolutely free. And once you sign up, you'll get a recording. So you don't even have to clear your calendar to watch it live, but to either watch it or get a copy of the recording, you do need to register. So go to the link, sign up and look for the details there. Anything else? Well, yeah, it's been a while since I've asked you, our listeners, to rate or leave a comment on the podcast app, Uh, but our listenership has nearly doubled in the past year, and if you are new to the podcast, which I know many of you are, I'd like to ask if you would please give us a rating and a comment. Not only do these comments help us know how we're doing, how you think we're doing so that we can make improvements, but the ratings and comments also cause us to become more visible to search engines uh, who have the, make those automated recommendations that you sometimes see when you're looking at other podcasts. In other words, your ratings help people find us. That's a huge help, and it also helps us to expand our reach out there in the blogosphere, so to speak. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Jessica Eteralde, Ann Steich, Kim Roberts, Andrea Suzo, Yonat Shimran, Alejandra Molina, Christina Darnell, and Rod Pitzer. A special thanks to ProPublica for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.